Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, we're continuing from Corinthians and Corinthians uh, chapter 15. And my title here is The Difference That Focus on the Resurrection Makes. Apparently in Corinth there were some who thought they could do Christianity, uh, maybe the more sophisticated Corinthians, in air quotes there, who thought that their more refined understanding in which they would separate out the body and the soul wouldn't require the resurrection. And maybe they thought of the resurrection as a kind of crude Jewish literalism. And Paul then, and I'm just going to read from 12 to 19 of chapter 15, he says if the resurrection is not true, Christianity is worthless. And he sums up this emptying out in four points. He says four things. The gospel would be empty and your faith would be empty. We apostles, he said, would all be liars. You would still be in your sins and dead believers are consigned to oblivion. So let's read verse 12 to 19. Now Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead how do you, some of you, you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And so denial of bodily resurrection, maybe even of its desirability, Paul says that's the primary marker of a futile faith, worse than paganism, he says, and not worthy of the name of Christ. And some of the Corinthians then, in saying that the resurrection is not a necessity, they've made their faith worthless. And Paul warns that a Christianity that would displace bodily resurrection as the core of salvation is a lie. Why would they, or maybe more pertinent, why do many Christians today believe in a Christianity in which bodily resurrection either is denied or it's a non sequitur. You know, even where it's acknowledged, it is often only as an addendum to the saving work of the cross. Justin Martyr explains in the second century in his debate with Trypho the Jew, he says there are some who are called Christians who say there is no resurrection of the dead and that their souls, when they die, are taken to heaven. These are godless, impious heretics, Justin warns Trypho. Do not imagine that they are Christians. Justin continues, I and others who are right-minded Christians on all points are assured that there will be a resurrection of the dead. And the words he used here, literally a resurrection of the flesh. And so the heresy, probably, that Paul is dealing with is very similar. A Greek dualism of body and soul. And of course, by Justin's definition, 
Most of what is popular Christianity today is a false religion. Now I've encountered it in the campus ministry. The campus minister acknowledged that it would not matter to him if they found the body of Jesus. And the board of that campus ministry made up of elders and preachers from Christian churches agreed with him. It's obviously denied in certain strands of theological liberalism, and I think it's even present in fundamentalism, in exactly the way that Justin condemns it. My friend Jason said, one friend told him, a lot of the people at our church, who is a, he's, this guy's a preacher, are very educated, and it's hard for them to believe the resurrection, so I don't insist on it. Really smart people are too smart to believe in that. So why does it matter as long as they're going to church or something? A Christianity that denies the resurrection is not Christian, Paul says. A Christianity that denies the need for the resurrection is certainly a misconstrued Christianity. A faith that recognizes sin is enslavement to death will recognize resurrection as the defeat of the category of sin and death. Evil, what is evil? It's the force of anti-creation, anti-life, the force which opposes, you know, seeks to destroy God's good creation and above all his image-bearing creatures through death. And that's why Paul in this chapter, we'll come next week, will talk about death is the final great enemy. And so let me go through his four points here. The proclamation of the gospel, he says, would be hollow, and your faith would be hollow without the resurrection. And the word here he uses is just the word vain, empty, without substance. Neither the gospel nor the faith of Christians would retain any substance. They would be a sham, a delusion. Christianity would be built, and the language here is connected the vain is a, a word similar to lying, idolatry, nothingness that Paul has used elsewhere. Number two, the, the apostles would be exposed as liars. And in fact, truth and lies would be reversed. All that Christianity counts as true would be a lie, Paul says. Third thing he says is that there would be no release from sin. Resurrection is front and center in release from sins. Without the resurrection, the redempting, atoning, liberating effect of Christ's death remains ineffective. For his death and resurrection are two sides of the redemption from the bondage to sin and death. And so new life is the direct correlate of the delivery from bondage. And then the fourth one would be that the dead believer is lost. He's consigned to oblivion. He's perished. Those who were laid to sleep, and this is the language of both Jesus and Paul, of sleeping, well, he says, well, they never wake up. And there is nothing beyond the grave. If there is nothing, then Christians are the most pitiful of all human beings. And sleep, you know, the, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, it's a word pregnant with the promise of future awakening. And that's the way Jesus uses the term. Let me do a, an exercise here to make the point that resurrection, if we move it, we put it in the center. I believe it constitutes an alternative Christianity to that Christianity that is often taught. And so I'm going to sum up. I could, you know, we could do this uh, any number of things. I just have eight things. 
that completely alters our understanding, I believe, of Christianity, just putting resurrection front and center. I'll call the theology based on law, which it often is, not resurrection. Let's call that contractual theology. And the resurrection then is really based on the spirit as over and against the letter. True knowledge, Paul is saying, and he says this here and other places, begins with the resurrection. In a contractual Christianity, how we know, it is assumed that we know on the basis of a kind of natural understanding. God is known as omnipotent, omniscient, and this is often from a bad reading of Romans chapter 1. And people know that you know God has these strong ethical demands. Maybe the Jews know it because of revelation. Everybody else knows it because of some sort of natural revelation. And then so everybody knows that reward and punishment are, are determined on the basis of keeping the law. And that happens on the day of judgment. I'm describing this contractual Christianity. Humans are sinful and everyone violates the law or fails to meet its ethical demands. And honest introspection reveals that everyone who knows this, they, everybody knows they're damned. All rational people then should be afraid or depressed and want a way out. And luckily Christ offers a resolution to this double problem that everybody knows God and they know their own incapacity to keep the law and being afraid of one's deserved punishment, maybe they'll accept Christ. But notice two things here. One is able to uh, attain a philosophically sophisticated knowledge of God. And yet there is this profound incapacity to know, you know or to do what one should. I believe this is just a misreading of Romans 1-4. to The problem, first of all, this does not fit Paul. Paul says about himself before he was a Christian that his conscience was clear. He didn't agonize or struggle. There is that picture in Romans 7, but that's not Paul's picture of his own conscious self-understanding. Faith and I were 20 years in Japan, and I wor we worked among cultural elites, you know, scientists, doctors of every kind, and every class of people. I never met one individual that had this natural understanding of God or of themselves. For my education, I thought, I presumed that I would go to Japan, I would meet depressed people agonizing over their sinful incapacity. And all that I would need to do is show them a way out of their dilemma. In the entire history of philosophy and ethics, it is not clear that the finest minds have arrived at anything approaching what is often taken to be Paul's starting point of human knowing. And I think, of course, it's not Paul's starting point. The alternative to this misconstrued natural light is what Paul describes as resurrection knowing. He describes this in Romans, Philippians, Corinthians. He says he contrasts two kinds of knowing. There's knowing grounded in the law. He describes this in 2 Corinthians. Knowing from ourselves. And this is over and against resurrection knowing. 
He's saying, apart from knowing the resurrected Jesus, one is bound by sin and death. And this is inclusive of our knowledge. That one has believed a lie. We've believed a lie. This is Romans 1, Romans 7, Philippians 3. There is no available light. No possibility of arriving at truth as people are given over to a lie. Resurrection knowing, knowing by the power of resurrection, that's what Paul says his whole goal is, is guided by the Spirit. And these two things continually come together, Spirit and resurrection. And Paul contrasts this knowing in 2 Corinthians 3. You can either know, he says, according to the letter of the law, to propositions, and that'll kill you. Or you can know according to the Spirit. So knowing is changed up by the resurrection. The second thing is just anthropology, what we think people are. People in typical contractual theology are thought to be individualistic, rational, and cognitive. And maybe innately immortal. We'll just throw that in there. And yet they are ethically incapacitated. And so the focus in this is on a spirituality or soulishness that is not dependent on the body. In this understanding, resurrection wouldn't be helpful. In fact, it would be a decline. It would be an imprisonment in the body, in the material world. On the other hand, in a theology in which resurrection is salvation, that's what Paul is saying, people are subject to death and futility and their apparent individualism, their apparent knowledge, is a symptom of sin. It's the knowledge of good and evil. In this understanding, people are not innately immortal, nor are they isolated individual souls. Bodily resurrection as salvation. You know, think of this. It speaks of corporateness, corporealness. It speaks of community of maleness and femaleness that is that we are resurrected in a corporate way in the body of Christ the incapacity of being subject to death you know if you die that's holistic right but death has a grip on us even prior to our physical death so that living out the resurrection is already a deliverance and again the focus is on resurrection life through the spirit now so anthropology is changed up third thing is theology is changed up theology here I just mean by our view of God in contractual theology God is known primarily as just as law giving but angry he's an angry judge such that a theodicy and a theodicy is just an answer to the problem of evil you know, Calvin says, oh, I know where evil comes from. It comes from God because he's angry. And he needs sin and evil in order to make better souls. That is, he's saying evil flows out of the character of God. Paul says the death and resurrection of Christ is the vindicating act of God. This is Romans 4.25. He was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Justification, righteousness, same word. Things are made right or they were wrong. God's justice in this understanding, it's not focused on application of law, 
but deliverance from death. God is deliverer. He's sovereign over chaos and death and loving. He's the source of a real help. You know, we use the word love in some forms of Christianity. It can't mean love if God hates you. In fact, Calvin says that. He says, well, love is kind of an anthropomorphism. But God really hates, and that's his, his anger is primary. And again, the helper, you know, this is the Holy Spirit, the word, the name for the Holy Spirit, enables us to live out this alternative understanding. In Christ's resurrection, and this is Corinthians, we didn't read this section, but it's on down here in chapter 15. God is Lord over the powers. He's defeated the powers. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in all Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, listen here, when he hands over the kingdom to God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. How does he do that? Through the resurrection. The fourth thing is that revelation is tied directly to resurrection. Where resurrection is the reconstitution of all things. You know, the picture is things are being recreated, including the human capacity to know natural revelation, whatever that might be construed to be, is obscured. It's obscured by sin and death and the lie. There is no cognitive, philosophical approach to God apart from the resurrection of Jesus. And we know this because revelation is pictured as life breaking into death, light breaking into darkness, understanding breaking into ignorance, truth as over and against a lie. And so in this understanding, revelation is retrospective from resurrection. That is, raised in Christ, saved in Christ, we can look back retrospectively and see what our problem was. I don't think we comprehend the problem apart from the solution. And from the solution, we can see that death had a grip on us, the fear of death. And so, again, the life and the Spirit leads us, you know, the Spirit leads into all truth as opposed to a living death based on a lie. The fifth thing, and this one is kind of a minor one, and that is the law. Where resurrection is the answer to the problem, and that's what Paul is saying, here's the solution. Now we know what the problem is. Law is not a primary category. It's secondary in that it pertains to death. That's what law did, right? The real problem is in the human orientation is the orientation to death and the law enters into that because people imagine there's life in the law and that's a lie. Law in the lie is a means to life. Think of the serpent in the garden, but think of the mistake of the Jews. They imagined that they could establish their own righteousness through the law. And this is strange because the economy of salvation in much traditional theology is presumed to operate on the basis of law. 
that's a complete misunderstanding of the law. The law, the economy of the law is not the controlling thing. Sixth thing is the atonement, and this is just obvious. Contractual theory does not explain, I, I believe, in any comprehensible manner, the death of Christ. What does it mean? Paul says that apart from the resurrection of Christ, you're still in your sins. Because sin reigns through death, and death no longer reigns only where resurrection has defeated death. Without the resurrection, the redemptive, atoning, liberating effect of Christ's death remains ineffective. For his death and his resurrection are two sides of redemption from the bondage to sin and death. And so new life is the direct correlate of delivery from the bondage to sin and death. It's very simple. The seventh thing is that faith is changed up. In contractual theology, faith is a cognitive affirmation of belief. The connection to salvation or deliverance, I believe, is, is unclear. Resurrection faithfulness speaks of trusting obedience in the face of death. It's connected to ethics. Why are people unethical? Why are they violent, envious? Well, that violent economy is an economy of death. Resurrection ethics that we begin to live out deals with that in a real world way. The last thing is salvation, soteriology, is very different where resurrection is centered. And so a Christian faith which poses the wrong problem, God's angry, gives us the wrong answer. Christ satisfies the law, God's anger is satisfied, and law is the main thing. And it concludes that death and resurrection actually are secondary to the main problem, God's wrath. This divides out ethics. You know, why should you be ethical? Well, there's no reason there. And it says that righteousness is merely theoretical. This is Luther's imputed righteousness. And does not bring about a real or necessary change. I believe that this does not deserve, in Paul's estimate, the name Christian. A religion which imagines God must punish the sinner, for justice requires it, then says he does not punish the sinner, but punishes a perfectly righteous man instead, and then attributes that righteousness to the sinner, that this is justice. Do you follow that? I would say that's the devil's religion that has been substituted for the Christian faith. Resurrection as the center of salvation makes it obvious that death and a death-dealing lifestyle are the problem. Being saved is cosmic. It's apocalyptic. It's not conditioned on our ability to bring it about. The resurrection, Paul says in Colossians, is a new way to construe the world. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. In Corinthians, he says, In time has begun in Christ a new creation has come to pass. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. In Timothy, Paul says, Christ Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We are no longer oriented to death, but to life now in the present tense. Romans 8:11. if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Romans 1, 4, Christ Jesus has been designated the Son of God in power 
according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. One verse after another. Paul opens the book of Romans. He's actually quoting the prophet Habakkuk. And the prophet Habakkuk is describing the situation in which Israel is surrounded by her enemies. He says, we're being slaughtered. It's a prayer to God. God, why aren't you saving us? We're like so many fish being caught on hooks. Where is your righteousness, God? And Paul quotes Habakkuk and says, the righteousness of God has been revealed now in and through Christ Jesus raised from the dead. Here's the answer to the prophetic call for righteousness. The death and resurrection is the vindicating act of God. Resurrection is the act of creation. It's on the level, Paul says, of the calling of Abraham, the the creation of Israel. The resurrection is the reestablishment of the community of Israel in Galatians on a new basis. He's referring to the church. The Christian goal is come, Paul says, it's to come to a full knowledge of the power of his resurrection. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.